Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're uh, kind of in the middle of the chapter. We've had a discussion about um, a discussion about spiritual gifts. And if you know 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul devotes, this is a troubled church, kind of the background. 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church had more trouble than any of the other churches that anybody writes to in the New Testament. All kinds of fleshly behavior, pagan behavior that's seeping into the church going on. And they are a gifted church. They have so many spiritual gifts. The bad news is that they have taken them to extremes, that they are using the gifts as if they are badges of honor and my gifts better than yours. And, oh, you only have that gift. Sorry, I have the more important gift or she does or whatever. And it's created a lot of division. He devotes three chapters to this subject, 12, 13, and 14. But right in the middle of 12 and 14 is 13, the chapter on love, the most cha famous chapter on love in the whole Bible. So um, that brings us kind of up to date. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. But last week, we ran out of time. I sent the notes out. If you get the notes, you saw the list. What list? The list of all the spiritual gifts. If you go to Romans 12, if you go to 1 Corinthians 12, there are different lists of spiritual gifts. They're not exhaustive, meaning every gift isn't listed. But when you combine them with what's in uh, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Here is the list of 19 spiritual gifts. I'm going to read these just, and you'll have them in the notes again, but the point of this is 1 Peter and also here in 1 Corinthians 12, we learn if you're a Christian, not only do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, but you have at least one spiritual gift. I can't tell you what yours is, or um, someone else might say, you know, you seem gifted in this area. That may be. So as you listen to the gifts, ask yourself, if you don't know your spiritual gift or gifts, ask God which one is for you. Here they are. And I'll just briefly comment on them. We did a lot of these last week. Um, administration, the gift of administration. Some people, not me, but some people are so good at that stuff, the business end of things and taking care of business at a church, um, being an apostle. Now, in, a, in the strict sense of the capital A, apostle sense, there are no more apostles. There was the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias plus Paul. Three or four other people in the New Testament are called apostles, but that is first century stuff. In a general sense, though, an apostle is someone whom the Lord Jesus sends out. And so in a small a sense, we're all apostles, right? We're supposed to spread the word about Jesus Christ, go into all the world and make disciples, Matthew 28 says. Um, an apostle in the strict sense, like Peter, James, John, Paul, had to have seen the risen Christ and been personally sent by Jesus to be an apostle. The apostles are the foundation of the church, uh, Ephesians 2 says, because they're writing scripture. A lot of them wrote Bible books. Uh, the gift of, number three, discernment. The ability to discern there's an evil spirit here going on in some way, or somebody's prophesying and it's not from the Lord, or somebody's speaking and it is from the Lord. That spiritual discernment uh, test all things, we're told. Uh, number four, the gift of evangelism. Did Billy Graham have it? Absolutely. 
Greg Laurie, there's other, a lot of other people. You may never, and I may never speak to stadiums of people or millions on the air, but some people just have that gift to be able to go to the grocery store and strike up a conversation and, and witness for Christ. Let's see, the gift of exhortation or encouragement. This is an important one. I'll tell you who it's important for, especially those in ministry. There's all kinds of reasons why pastors need that encouragement. Some people just have that uplifting nature given by God. Um, the gift of faith. Now, in a sense, we're all given faith when we become saved. Unto each is given a measure of faith. You didn't build, you didn't get your faith on your own. God gave it to you. But some people have extraordinary faith. These are the prayer warrior type folks. Um, the gift of giving. Don't worry, we're not going to take a collection or anything, but um, this is the gift of people that are just generous with their, not only their treasure, but their time and their talent for the kingdom of God. The gift of healing. We talked about this last week. This is a gift that could God still heal today? Yes, he's God. Who am I to say he can't? However, these sign gifts, for the most part, are greatly less than they were in the time of the first century, because those miracles that were uh, that miraculous were used to authenticate or verify the, the message of the gospel because the Bible hadn't been written yet. It was being written as it was being shared. So the gift of healing. I always say if someone says they have, so-and-so has the gift of healing, please, I'll pick them up Monday morning. Let's go to all the hospitals and clean them out and all the rest homes and all the, you know, the people that are shut-ins and um, could somebody have that gift today? I, it's always possible. It's just not normative, I would say. Um, the gift of helps. This is an important one in churches. This is the person that says, what needs to be done? When? I'll do it. No desire to be the, the one uh, that everybody sees. This is a behind the scenes kind of a humble gift. The person that's always willing to help. The gift of hospitality, opening up their home um, for various church, uh, events, or somebody needs a place to stay, gift of hospitality, the gift of knowledge. We talked about this last week. Uh, and we all have some knowledge, obviously some people have ex given extraordinary knowledge, things that they might not have known had God not revealed it to them. Um, this also means knowledge, the ability to remember what they've learned in the Bible and what have you, the gift of leadership, some there's some overlap, by the way, in all these. The gift of leadership in a church. Some people are leaders, some are followers, some people are are natural and good at leading. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of mercy. The ability to instead of that person should be punished for what they did, the gift of mercy person says, you know what? God forgave them. Let's forgive them too. The gift of withholding of punishment. That's what mercy is, different from grace. The gift of prophecy. We talked about last, that last week. Most people hear prophecy and they think, oh yeah, like foretelling the future. In two weeks, this is going to happen or within the next year. Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, that was a very small percentage of what a prophet did. Mostly, instead of foretelling the future, they were forthtelling the gospel or the message that God had given from the scriptures. Teaching is a part of this. Um, in other words, the word for prophecy means 
It's two words put together. It means pro, before, and speak is all it means. It means to speak before people. Some people don't want to get up and talk in front of people. I used to be a person like that. I don't know what I'm doing here, but here I am. The gift of prophecy, that person has the gift of standing up and speaking before other people, the word of God. The gift of serving. There are always people in a church that are just, they have the servant's heart and they wish to minister to others. It's interesting, the word minister means servant. The gift of speaking in tongues, we talked about that last week. There's different schools of thought on this. Um, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends and people are speaking languages they never knew before, and people are hearing them in their individual languages. Brian and I were talking about this on Sunday. Um, let's see, that he's going to devote most of chapter 14 to because they had, the Corinthians, considered that gift so important. It was the big deal one that people were faking it, pagan babbling was going on. Um, and so that's another gift. And there has to be the gift of interpretation also when someone speaks in tongues. I'll just quickly finish these. The gift of teaching, sometimes known as shepherding, giving lessons to the children. Nancy's going to teach the kids on Sunday. That's an awesome thing. The gift of teaching God's word. You may, there are people that know it so well, and they just don't have the gift of teaching it. It's a different thing, isn't it? The gift of wisdom, extraordinary wisdom. We all have a degree of wisdom. We said last week, wisdom is the application of knowledge. Somebody can be very smart and not be very wise. They have the knowledge. They haven't applied it to their lives. Wisdom. And the last one is the gift of the miraculous, miracles. Again, I believe that's a sign gift that was extant in the first century to validate the gospel message. I don't see people parting Red Seas lately, right? Um, but it's extraordinary uh, sign type of gift. First uh, Peter 4 is where at verse 10 and 11, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. There's other places as well. Okay, let's go to verse 12 and keep moving. Um, and go to the text, so that I know that you're awake, say amen. amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, so I know you're awake, say amen. I see an amen sign there and uh, people waving. All right, verse 12, just as a body, and we're in chapter 12, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. I'm calling this portion unity in diversity. He wants to make the analogy about the church, okay? When we say church, I want to just give you two, a macro and a micro definition. Micro, small definition, meaning the local church that you go to, wherever it is. With me so far? Macro, giant definition, the church, universal. Christians in Saudi Arabia, Christians in Canada, Christians in Japan, wherever it may be, um, the body of Christ is, is throughout the whole world. So in both cases, he's saying in this verse, there, he's going to make the analogy of a human body, one body made up of a bunch of different parts. What he's going to get to is the fact that some parts are more visible and more useful. When you meet someone, do you ever look first at their feet? 
Probably not, right? Or their kneecaps, if they have shorts on, you want to check? No. You tend to look at someone's face, right? You might look at their hands, their eyes. So it may seem like, well, those are the more important parts. And maybe even the person thinks that way. But wait till they have an, uh, an intestinal problem and suddenly the intestines, which never get seen, are much more important suddenly. The point is a bunch of different parts. They're not all the same part, but they're all important and they all work together because there's got to be that unity in diversity. One body, the one, verse 12, has many parts, but all its many parts form the one body. So it is with Christ. So why is he saying this? Keep in mind, Paul's not just throwing out stuff. He's preaching to a church where there's great division. They've divided over, well, I'm a Peter Christian. Oh, yeah, well, we're Paul Christians. Well, we don't follow any human leader. We're Jesus Christians. Oh, well, we're Christians of Apollos. We like that kind of preaching. He's saying, come on, people. We're all one in Christ. So unity in diversity. Verse 13, for we were all baptized by several spirits. No, nope. one spirit all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentile, slave or free, were all given the one spirit to drink. He's trying to show them the oneness that they have, even though they're very different. If you look around this room or look on the screens, there's only about eight or nine screens that are visible. Most people are blacking out their screen, which is probably a good thing for some people. Anyway, um, I know one person that watches in their pajamas. So for her, that's fine. Keep your screen off. Anyway, there's great, <laughs> there's great diversity. We look different. We're different nationalities. We weigh different. We're high, short, tall, medium, whatever. But verse 13 starts, we were all baptized by one spirit. You mean water baptism? No. That's a different thing. That's a physical baptism. That's a visual representation of what happened to us spiritually when we believed. The moment we believed in the Lord Jesus as our Savior, some of you know when that was, and you could even tell me the day. Some would say it was more a gradual thing. But when you finally believed, two things. Number one, I can guarantee you that's not the first day the Holy Spirit was dealing with you. Probably for months, if not years, he was drawing you, convicting you of sin, making you thirsty for Jesus and salvation, fellowship with other believers. But the other point is, this is spirit baptism. It sounds weird. It's a biblical concept. All it means is that you and I, the moment we believed, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of us, and we were sort of dunked into, spiritually, the Holy Spirit immersed in him and he in us. All of us who are believers were baptized by one spirit. He means the Holy Spirit. I'm still in verse 13. So as to form one body. Well, I go to the Presbyterian church, so that's the body that I'm... No, no. If you die and go to heaven, don't ask, where's the Baptist neighborhood? I'd like to stay with those people. There's not going to be those divisions up there, I'll tell you right now. Where's the Assembly of God and the Methodist and the... One body, one spirit, whether Jews or Gentiles, there's race. Some have Jews and Greeks. Greeks is a way for the Jews to say all other people not 
uh, Jews. So there's no racial division. I'd like to go to the Italian neighborhood when I die and go to heaven. There is no Italian neighborhood. The food would be better, but there is no, sorry. Um, whether Jews or Greeks, okay, now social distinctions, slave or free. What does that mean? The slaves were the poorest people. Free meant at least middle class or lower middle class to the wealthy. There's none of that at the foot of the cross. In Galatians, Paul adds a third category. Do you remember? Gender. No, there's no male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're all one in Jesus Christ. In terms of equality, in terms of salvation, women, men, slave, free, any nationality, doesn't matter. Even Italians can be saved. We're all part of this. Uh, let's see. We are all given the one spirit to drink. That recalls John 7, where Jesus says, come to me and drink. And it, he's talking about the, the Holy Spirit himself, uh, that he uh, gives that. Come drink to, of me and find refreshment, John 7, 37 to 39. So um, keep your finger here and go to one book to the left. Go to Romans 8. I just want to show you something real quick. We talked about it a second ago. Just to hammer it home, go to Romans 8, one book to the left. We won't be here long. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He's talking to Christians, and he says in verse 9, you, however, are not controlled, uh, sorry, you are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, synonym, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So that verse is saying that prior to being saved, whether you know it or not, you and I were controlled by our sinful nature. That's what called the shots. Yes, sometimes we obeyed God and did good things, but usually we were controlled by our sinful nature. He's saying you, believer, verse 9, are not controlled by the sinful nature anymore, but by the Holy Spirit. But there's a battle that goes on. To the extent that you submit to the Holy Spirit, you obey him and you don't sin. To the extent that you and I resist the Holy Spirit, we sin and the results are not good. Um, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he's using a synonym, it means the same Holy Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. So anyone that doesn't have the Holy Spirit is not a Christian. Now he's going to say it the other way. Um, but if Christ is in you, your body, oh, let's say, let's see, I, let me back up. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Elsewhere, we learn, not here, that every believer, the moment they believe, has the Holy Spirit. Okay, go back to 1 Corinthians. I just wanted you to see that verse. Um, we already talked about that. Okay, verse 14, more unity and diversity. 14, even so, the body's not made up of one part, but of many. And obviously the parts are extremely different from the heart to the pinky, to the small toe, to the kneecap, to the esophagus, to the brain, all different parts, but they're each important, right? Okay. Various functions, some might look better or be seen more, but they're each necessary and important. That's the point part he wants the Corinthians to get, and us as well. Not made up of one part, but of many. Imagine a whole body that's just an eyeball, right? Or a toe. It's not really a body. Diverse parts. Same thing with a church. It takes all kinds of people 
for a church to exist. Look at verse 15. Hypothetical. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body, just because he feels that way. Okay, what's going on here? This is a hand, very important part. Would you agree of the body? You use your hand a lot. If you're Italian, you can't talk unless you move your hands, right? The point is the hand is a more prominent part of the body, like the eye or the ear or the mouth. A foot in that culture, especially dirt roads, muddy roads, feet were dirty. That's why when you come into somebody's house, they would at least have a bowl of water there for you to wash your feet. If your host was very gracious, he would wash your feet or have a servant wash your feet. Jesus took the form of a servant and washed their feet. Feet, not as attractive or might not seem as important as hands until you need to walk somewhere. The hand is the dominant guy in the church in Corinth who's got all kinds of spiritual gifts, and he's making the foot, Harold over here will make him some fictional character, feel inferior. Because you don't have the gifts I do, you're really not that important in the body. So if the foot should hear that and believe it and say, because I'm not a hand, I guess I don't belong to the body, he'd be mistaken. He'd be wrong, right? They wouldn't, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. Just because you feel, I'm not that important in this church. Paul's saying, oh, yes, you are. God placed you right where you are. He's going to spell that out in a second. And who are we to say, God didn't put the right people in this church. He put everybody that's supposed to be here, here, amen, and in every church. Verse 16, and if the ears should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. Um, that would be a tough one. I was thinking about this the other day. If I had to lose either hearing, which would include comprehension of speech and music for me, or lose sight and not lose independence and not be able to see, it'd be a tough one, wouldn't it? But most people want to see so they can be independent and move places. This person is an ear. He's a much more important person, but somebody's making him feel not that important. It's sort of the same argument. Verse 17, now he's going to draw, take it to extremes. If the whole body were an eye, which I mentioned earlier, where would the sense of hearing be? Right? Kind of silly. If everybody was like you, Mr. Eye or Mr. Hand, it would just be a bunch of hands. And there wouldn't be the eye or the ear. Every part has a purpose uh, from God to play. Uh, if the whole, I'm still in 17, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, verse 18, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Okay, that works two ways. If that's true, and it is because it's in scripture. God placed every part of the body where he wanted them, then far be it from any of us, how dare we say, she's a lesser part of the body, or he's not that important. Who are we? But by the same token, if we feel less important sometimes in the body of Christ, this is a verse of great encouragement that, no, no, you have a part to play. You are integral to that body, the body of Christ, the church. Each has to play a part. Now, it's true 
there are always in every church a, a minority of people who do the majority of work. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes they say 5% do 90% of the work or 10% do 90% of the work or whatever it may be. So if you're one of those people, praise God, you're involved in this church or your church, wherever it may be. If you're one of the people that doesn't really get involved, I just kind of try to listen and slip out before anybody meets me. You need to get more involved because God placed you here for a reason. This church needs whatever gift you have. Believe me. Okay. So are all you feet and eyes and ears paying attention? Okay. Um, I won't say who's who. Um, let's keep rolling. Um, so there were people that felt like I don't have that gift. I don't have the hand gift or the eye gift. I'm an ear uh, or I'm a foot. Okay. Because the people of that church were making distinctions and had rankings of that's an important gift. And they considered the more showy gifts more important. So the person that has the gift of help or encouragement, more of a behind the scenes gift, those people were made, being made to feel you're kind of a lesser Christian. God has blessed and given gifts of extreme um, teaching ability or prophecy or tongues to the important ones. You're not one of the important ones. He, Paul is squashing that argument. Keep in mind, everything Paul covers in the book of 1 Corinthians, he tells us that, uh, tells us that the, early in the book that he's writing, responding to their letter because they had written to him about, we got this problem, we got that problem, we got divisions, we got tongues being done in a disorderly way, whatever it may be. So this is definitely happening, happening there. That's why he spends so much time on this body where one analogy. Um, let's see, did we get to 18? Yes. He put them there. Far be it from me to rearrange the order of the body. Um, small parts, big parts, they're all important. Verse 19, if they were all one part, where would the body be? There'd be no body, right? As it is, there are many parts, but one body, verse 20, sort of summarizing. So just to beat a dead horse, we're going to keep going. But let me stop for a second and say this. And I've said this in this Bible study a lot. I apologize if you've heard me say it a lot, but it's important. Christianity, listen, is not me and my Jesus. See you later. Or us four, no more, shut the door. You ever heard that one? We just got a little, our little click here. Christianity is a community. Okay. What do you mean? Look at the Lord's Prayer. Most of the pronouns are plural. My father who, oh no, it's our father, isn't it? Um, give me this day. Oh yeah, it's give us this day. Forgive me. Oh, it's forgive us, isn't it? As we forgive others. It's plural. We are supposed to be a community. Um, to the extent that we are not, we're missing out on a great deal. It's my opinion. I, we used to, in Santa Cruz, go to a church called Twin Lakes. It's a great church, don't get me wrong, but it's big. And the problem with a big church is it's possible to waltz in, hear the sermon, sing a few songs, and put a check in the offering plate and waltz out and nobody even knows your name. Why do you think we're always saying in this church, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know, and we're supposed to be a body. 
If you go to a big church, may I suggest find a small group and get into it. A small Bible study, a large Bible study, whatever, but a smaller group than the 2,000, 20,000 people that church that you go to. That's the danger of a large church. There, it's probably a large church because the pastor is an unbelievable speaker and charismatic. So what? Get involved in the body. Very important. Plural in the Lord's prayer. It's a unified organism I have in my notes here. Paul wants you to know the hand can take no pride that he's a hand and not a foot. And the foot has no shame in being a foot. Whatever you do in your church, you're there for a reason. Okay, let's keep rolling. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, on Zoom, anybody asleep? No, it looks pretty good. All right, great. The eye cannot say to the hand, verse 21, I don't need you. Then the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. He's saying that because that's what they're doing in that church and it's horrible. Um, they're making some people feel inferior and insecure. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, the word for weaker is an interesting word in Greek. Some of the scholars that I read said it doesn't just mean weaker. It can mean less presentable. Okay. For example, if I said, um, I'm going to take out my um, pancreas now and show everyone, you probably would go, no, that's okay. Right. I mean, if I show you my hand or my eye, you'd go, okay, it's a little bloodshot, but yeah, great. We don't really need to see your lower intestine, Joe. That's, that's fine. It's less presentable, but it's no less important. That's his point. We can't all be hands, eyes, whatever. Every part is important. Um, let's see. Uh, verse 22, the weaker parts are indispensable and the parts verse 23 that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Now he's getting into, and we don't have to spell it out, but that's why we wear clothing because some parts you don't want to see, right? And you shouldn't see. Um, of course, there are cultures where people walk around with no clothes on, and that's that culture, and so be it. But in any case, everybody is necessary together. Keywords. Um, and below the surface here is humility, which this church lacks. Uh, James 4, 6 to 10 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Very important. Another place in the Bible, it says, humble yourself and he'll exalt you. Or if you exalt yourself, he's going to humble you. Look out. He'll bring you down a few pegs. It is my opinion that people who are always telling you how great they are, are actually insecure. You ever thought that? That's why they're always telling, I'm so great. I'm, you know, let me just tell you about me. You ever meet those kind of people? All they do want to do is talk about themselves. They talk about themselves for an hour. And then they say, you know what? That's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> Humility, very key. Our example in this is the Lord Jesus Christ, humble throughout his life, obedient to the Father. When was the last time the church gave public recognition? to the nursery workers. 
or the cleanup crew or the person that does the vacuuming. Well, that's sort of like a little toe. They're all important. Let's keep reading. Um, let's see, did we do 23? Yes. Verse 24, while our presentable parts, yes, we, oh yeah, that's true. Uh, verse 24, we didn't do, while our presentable parts need no special treatment, eye, hand, that kind of thing. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. What does that mean? That means that God, maybe not visibly, but he honors the humble servant in church who is a prayer warrior and you don't even know her name or she's got the gift of helps and she's always in the kitchen. You never even see her come out or whoever it may be. God gives special honor to that humble servant who doesn't do it for the attention or the glory. That person does it for the glory of someone else, of God. So we're interconnected. Uh, we already talked about that. I'm just reading notes. Okay. Um, verse 25. So that he, let's read the last sentence of 24 too. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be, here it comes, no division. No hierarchy. We're more important than you. No division of any kind in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Galatians 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Bear means carry one another's burdens. You mean physical stuff? Sometimes. But if you know someone's burdened over some uh, crisis in their life, and you say, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I'll pray for you. There may be, and that's good, by the way, to pray, but there may be a way in which you can help lighten their load by taking some of it for them, coming alongside of them. Bear one another's burdens, plural, and fulfill the law of Christ. The parts all work together. When the foot is walking barefoot and gets a thorn, the hand helps get it out, doesn't it? Um, no one would ever say, uh, I, what we would say is I'm in pain, right? And if you've ever been in extreme pain, it feels like your whole body's in pain. Even if it's just your knee or your foot or whatever, your whole body's in pain. We got to remember we are a body, a connected unit. This is unlike, by the way, I believe, any other human institution. You can belong to the Latin club at school or the, be on a basketball team, and there's certainly a camaraderie or work at a company of 30 people, and there's a camaraderie, but the church relationship is unique under the lordship of Jesus, who's the head in the body analogy, right? He's used that earlier. All of us parts have to love one another, bear one another's burdens. Very important. If there's a body part, theoretically, he doesn't say this, but I'll say it because of what we prayed for earlier. If there's a body, a something in my, we'll make it my body. If there's something in my body that, listen, that only lives to serve itself, 
It never contributes anything to the rest of my body. It just continues to suck up resources and grow. We have a name for that. Do you know what it is? Cancer, right? And that sort of a body part is no part at all, is it? It's an invader. So what do we do? We go to the doctor and say, cut it out every last cell of it, right? Okay, still rolling along here. We're making great time. We might even get another two verses done before 7.30. Um, the teacher likes to talk a lot here. Um, verse 26, if one part suffers, who cares? Wrong. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Bear one another's burdens. Um, elsewhere, uh, Paul says about suffering together that we, uh, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Listen, true friends, true family members, true, true body members care enough to share the joys and the sorrows. I've told you this before. I have a friend. He lives in Ecuador now. He is not a Christian. He's Jewish by ancestry, but he is kind of an atheist. I've witnessed him. He doesn't want to hear it. I still love the guy. But when we lived near each other in Rio del Mar, near Santa Cruz, he was one of my best friends. And he, when I had a problem, I've told you this before, some of you know it, and I would tell him, this is, wow, I don't know what I'm going to do. He would say, what are we going to do about that? Not what are you going to do about that? And he would just offer ideas, offer help. He was a wonderful friend. That's what we're supposed to be to one another because we're interconnected. Okay, back to the text. One part suffers, we all suffer together. One part's honored, every part rejoices with it. Why do you think that's in there? Because what there was, and we'll learn this in chapter 13, what there was was envy, jealousy. One part's rejoicing. They got a brand new car and he got a raise at work. And I, I wish that was me. I'm kind of resentful that it was, why is he being blessed and not me? No, the right attitude, we rejoice with the individual body parts when they're rejoicing and we cry with them when they're weeping. It's, it's a beautiful picture of interconnectedness, is it not? Okay, now we're moving on. Now you, verse 27, are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. He's reassuring them. Every one of you, the ones that don't feel as secure as the others are important, you're all a part of it. We're the body, the living body of Jesus Christ. How many know that God did not have to do it this way? What do you mean? God is God. Christ is God. They could just make stuff happen here on their own, right? And he does. Don't think he doesn't. I'm not a believer in the mechanical universe. That was a philosophical thing we learned in philosophy class at San Jose State. Mechanical universe is, well, God, yes, he made everything and set all the planets in motion and spinning and the orbits and gravity and all the laws of science, but he's kind of stepped away and he's in the Bahamas now on vacation and we're kind of on our own here. God has a condo. Did you know that in the Bahamas? No, I'm just kidding. The point is, 
God is intimately involved, but he chooses to condescend to use faulty people like you and me, right? Could he do it another way? Yes, but he chooses to use us. That's why Jesus rises from the dead, gets with the apostles in Matthew 28 and says what I quoted earlier, the great commission. You guys, yeah, go into all the world and make disciples. Why don't you do it, Jesus? Because I'm sending you. He wants to use people to reach people. We're the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. Verse 28, and God is placed in the church. Now he's going to go through a little order of offices. More than they are gifts, there's some overlap. He's placed in the church. First of all, apostles. We talked about that definition. I won't beat that dead horse, but that's was the highest office in that day. Again, all under the lordship of Jesus. Second of all, prophets. These are people that teach on a grandiose scale. They speak forth the word of God. Third, teachers. Then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and different kinds of tongues. So those are, again, it's not an exhaustive list. It's a smaller list than the one we looked at last week and tonight. Teachers, meaning people that teach, teach the kids. It can mean a mother teaching her two daughters the gospel out of the Bible, somebody that has a gift of teaching. And then miracles, we talked about that. Gifts of healing, we talked about that. Helping of guidance, that's a different category. And of different kinds of tongues. When there are lists like this, tongues is always, interestingly, last. So now he's going to ask some rhetorical questions for which each one, the answer implied is no. Verse 29, are all apostles? No. Certain ones were chosen. Out of the many people that lived on the earth, Jesus picked 12 guys. He picked one of them, Judas, because he knew this guy will betray me. Wasn't that a bad decision? He got 11 out of 12, right? Oh, no. He came to die. That was the perfect decision. Somebody had to betray him. And Judas acted of his own free will. The Bible speaks about that and yet says, woe to them. It was, he was chosen to do it, and yet he acted of his own free will. Are all apostles? No. Why is this in here? Why is he going through this hierarchy? Because some of them wanted to be yeah, I have a teaching job at the church, or I'm a helper, I'm an encourager. I wish I was an apostle. Those guys get listened to. They get the, the nods and the greetings from people. I want a more prestigious gift, God. I want to go over your head to your supervisor. Oh, there is no supervisor. I don't agree with the gift you gave me. It's such a humble gift. I'm a little toe. He's saying, don't do that. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? By the way, if all were teachers, who would we teach? Right? There's no students. Are do all, oh, sorry, yeah, are all teachers. Do all work miracles? What's the obvious answer to all of these? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? 
do all interpret, meaning interpret the songs, tongue, tongues. Someone stands up in a church, speaks in a different language they never learned before, didn't study it in college or high school or anything. They're just suddenly given the gift to speak Greek. And wouldn't you know, there's a woman here from Greece who speaks Greek, and she's hearing the gospel in her own language. It's a miracle. And then Jeff has the gift of interpretation, and he stands up and says, thus saith the Lord. What Joe just said was, and he said, he's given that gift as well. Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No. Why are you camping on this one, Joe? I'll tell you why. Because there's a lot of churches where they treat speaking in tongues, where they teach that speaking in tongues, listen, is the T-H-E evidence of the Holy Spirit. Oh, you don't speak in tongues? I'll pray for you. As if you're somehow lesser. Quote this verse, if anybody does that to you. Do all speak in tongues? No. Just like, are we all apostles? No. I told you last week, there are Pentecostal churches. There are good Pentecostal churches. I'm not saying they're all bad, but there are some where they'll take you in a back room and give you the gift of speaking in tongues. Remember what we say last week? Tie my bow tie, right? Say that again. Tie my bow tie. Say it five times. Tie my bow tie, tie my bow tie, tie my bow tie. tie. Sooner or later, you're going to get tongue tied and start. There it is. If there's such an emphasis on tongues and I'm fleshly. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, oh, good. I got it. I, I speak in tongues now. As if it's some badge of honor. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do, are all apostles? No. There are different gifts. Apostle, by the word is the, uh, by the way, is the word apostello. Um, Maybe some of you have heard of Abbott and Costello. That has nothing to do with this, but I thought I'd throw it out. Apostello means to send out in Greek. Um, we talked about all these other ones, tongues. He's going to spend most of chapter 14 dispelling all the bad stuff that's going on. In that chapter, he's going to say tongues is a gift is for unbelievers to hear the gospel in their tongue as a sign. We'll get there in chapter 14, probably take five years, but we'll get there. Don't worry. Um, the other thing he's going to say, uh, well, I'll leave that for chapter 14. They're not all apostles. It's not the evidence. If you make it in your church, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, you're inviting people to fake it. And some people do. Do they all? No. But some people fake it to be a part of the club because they're being made to feel less, lesser uh, as a believer. Um, okay. Okay, verse 31. This is a difficult verse to translate, okay? And most of your Bibles are going to say what NIV says. And what I've come to learn is, I think there's another way to take this verse. Look at the whole context of this chapter. He's basically, let me put it in layman's terms, you Corinthians, you're blowing it. You're overemphasizing the gifts. You think your gift's better than hers, and his is better than his, and mine's better than all of yours. And verse 31 in NIV says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Does your version nod if it does kind of say something similar to that? Okay. In Greek, 
the pronoun you, and it's you all, because Paul was from the South, y'all. It's plural, okay? It's you all. So you could read it, you all eagerly desire the greater gifts, okay? It could be taken as an indicative, which means it's just a statement of fact. You all desire the greater gifts. We'll come back to that. That, I believe, is the right translation, and it has a totally different meaning than most of the translations say. It sounds like it is a command. It's a suggestion, a strong suggestion. Hey, you all, you should be desiring the greater gifts. Listen, does that make sense in context? I don't think so. Here's why. Because, wait, how many times did he say in chapter 12, who gives the gifts? The Holy Spirit to whomever he wishes. God gives the gifts. God places the parts there. So if I have a lesser gift, is this verse telling me, Joe, you need to desire the better gift that Doreen has? That's going to create envy, and I'm going to be bummed out if God doesn't give it to me. What, what's your point, Joe? It could be an indicative. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this very verse, thinks he's what he's being saying here is derogatory. You all are desiring the greater showy gifts. Read the rest of the verse. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. In other words, stop desiring the showy, showy gifts. Harold, your gift is helps. That's important in a church. Just because you don't get the attention that the guy that preaches every Sunday does, don't desire that greater gift. Just because Paul's an apostle, don't desire the greater gift. I think he might be onto something. It may be saying, desire the greater gifts, eagerly desire them. But I think he's um, chastising them. You all are desire. You all desire the greater gifts. That's why he says, "I'll show you the not a better way, the most excellent way." This is a perfect time to take our two-minute break. Let's do that now. Go get some snacks back there. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. I'm just going to turn my screen off. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Those of you that are here, find your seats and don't talk with your mouth full. Find your seats, if you will. I'll tell you the truth. I've enjoyed teaching chapter 12, but chapter 13, I, have, I can't wait to dive in to this amazing chapter. And we got half an hour or so. Um, in any case, I want you to notice that Chapter 13 is sandwiched, as I said earlier, between 12, which is all about spiritual gifts, and 14, which is all about spiritual gifts. And it's not because Paul was ADD, attention deficit disorder, and was just sort of looking, oh, look, a bird. This comes right where it needs to be. The, this chapter is about love. It's read at weddings. It's read at funerals. It is possibly the one of the most popular chapters in the New Testament. It is beautiful. Chapter 13 is 13 verses, and it's profound. I like to give this analogy sometimes that when you were a kid, if you drove 
on a vacation with your folks in the station wagon. And let's say you went um, on a vacation and um, you're going to the Grand Canyon. On the highway, you're going 55 or 60 miles an hour and stuff is just whizzing by and oh, look, some trees and oh, look at that. Oh, there's a little town. And But when you get to the Grand Canyon, you don't drive by and your dad goes, it's on the left and you just keep going. You pull over, you park, you get out and you really look at it. This is a portion of scripture. We're going to park and get out and really try to take it apart piece by piece. So be patient with me for teaching that way. Um, this is not, listen, just an abstract teaching on love. It's all about, in context, the greatest gift is not apostlehood or prophethood or tongues or miracles or the gift of healing. That That's the one I want. Listen, he's going to say in this chapter, no matter what gifts you have, if you don't have love, he's not going to say you're a little less. He's going to say you're a zero. You're absolutely nothing without love, which makes love, listen, the most important thing, right? Old Testament and new. In, in Galatians 5, uh, verse 22, uh, there's the gifts, I'm sorry, the fruit of the Spirit. You remember that? What's the first one? Love is the very first one. Priority. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Are all those important? Yes. Love, trumps them all. When Jesus is on the earth and he's teaching, someone comes up to him, do you remember this, and says, what's the greatest commandment? In other words, boil it all down, Jesus. And he doesn't say one, he says two, do you remember? But they're really the same. What's the common thing in the two commandments he gives? Love and love. Jesus says, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God, love vertically, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second one is like unto it? Love your neighbor, horizontal love as yourself. In this, Jesus says, all the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, you do that, you don't need to worry about any of that stuff. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which involves humility, obedience, all those things. Love your neighbor as yourself, which takes care of you won't be greedy. You won't commit adultery and sleep with your neighbor's wife because that wouldn't be loving. Love is the key thing in the Bible. This is the chapter on love. But with regard to the Corinthians, he's going to mention characteristics about love. He's never going to actually define it, but we will as we get into it. Um, let's see. The most obvious thing that somebody has the Holy Spirit is not, she speaks in tongues. He speaks in, he, he's got a he's gift of teaching. Look, he's got the, whole, the most obvious one is love. What does Jesus say in uh, the gospel of John? By this one thing, shall all men know that you're my disciples? Tongues? No. Prophecy? No. G generosity? No. That you love one another the body. So we're back to all of that again. Um, yeah, we already talked about the gifts. Okay. Uh, I got a little more intro before we dive in, but I, I really can't wait. Keep in mind that you, like a little kid, huh? When do we go to Disneyland? Not yet. We're not there yet. How much further? God's love has placed, he's placed, listen, his love inside of you and me 
via the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans says he has shed abroad his love in our hearts. Okay? So this is not something you and I have to conjure up. Okay? Um, uh, do we want to go there now? Yes. Uh, by this, will everyone know you're my disciples, that you love one another? Go to Romans 13, 9, real quick. Go to the left, one book. Romans 13, verse 9. No, we got to pick it up in verse 8. My apology. Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to what? Love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the most important thing, folks. Love. Okay. We already talked about that. At the end of this chapter, He's going to name the big three. Now, these three remain. Faith, that's important. Hope, very important. And love. And he's going to say the greatest of these is what? Love. More important than faith? Absolutely. Okay. Last thing, and then I promise we'll dive in. Love is not an emotion. Love is not a feeling. I know in a million popular songs and movies, romantic movies, they do what? They fall in love. They feel it. Sorry, I, I just don't feel it for you. Wrong. Love's not a feeling. Love's not an emotion. How do you know that, smarty pants? I'll tell you. Because you can't command an emotion. And God commands that we love him and that we love each other. Do it. It's a command. Wait, wait, wait. I don't feel it about her. In fact, I don't even like her. Love is not an emotion. Listen, imagine we're in the army and I'm your commanding officer. And I say, all right, on the count of three, everybody, feel sad. One, two, three. You can fake it and... You can't command an emotion. You either feel sad or you don't. Okay, everybody in count of three, feel happy. These are emotions, sadness, happiness, right? Everybody, one, two, three, feel happy. You, you fakers, you're either happy or you're not. So love isn't an emotion or it wouldn't be commanded. Well, then what is it? It's a verb. It's just something you do, whether you feel it or not. Proof? love your enemy your what no no i'll never feel that exactly love your enemies pray for those who you know spitefully use you it's not an emotion get that love sappy love song out of your head i'm waiting till i feel it then i'll act lovingly toward him i don't like him i got news for you Love him anyway. Do good for him. Pray for him. Be kind to him. And guess what will happen? The emotion will follow. And you'll, you'll go, you know, I, I used to hate him. I'm kind of growing fond of him now. 
exactly. But it's not an emotion. Okay. There are several words for love. Quickly. Eros, from which we get erotic. Sexual love. Not what's being mentioned here. Storge, these are all Greek words. The Greeks really had an amazing language. God chose Greek for the New Testament for this reason. Storge, family love. Parent, child, child, parent. I love my mom. I love my uncle, my cousins. Family love. I love my sister, my brother. Philia, brotherly love. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. We're getting higher on the list now. Agape or agapao is the verb. Unconditional, selfless love that never asks in return, hey, now you got to do it for me now because I loved you. It just gives selflessly, unconditionally. That's the word here. Shall we dive in? It's about time, Joe. Okay, sorry. Okay, so in a chapter about love, he's showing them the most excellent way. Do you see that at the end of chapter 12? The chapter divisions came in the 13th century. I believe, a lot of scholars believe, that sentence, and yet I'll show you the most excellent way, should be part of the next chapter, 13. Doesn't matter. He's showing them the more excellent way. It's L-O-V-E. Watch. Why start a chapter with love about tongues, with the word tongues? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay, what's going on here? Number one, if you look at verse one, verse two, verse three, the word if, 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 meaning what? It's hypothetical. And you're going to notice in each case, he's taking each thing to the extreme. Okay. He's not saying if I was wealthy, he's saying if I had all the money in the world, you understand it's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make a point. So <clears throat> because they value tongues are so important, he's going to say, theoretically, hypothetically, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, hypothetically, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What does that mean? I'm just making noise. It's And it's not pleasant. Okay. Some translations have the word brass there. Gongs were often made out of brass. You ever heard a gong with the big thing? Imagine you've come to the gong concert and it's going to be 45 minutes of... Where are you guys going? Or the symbol concert. Okay, we get it, Joe. You're starting to be annoying. No kidding. <clears throat> That's what he's saying. Speaking in tongues, it's all about me. It's not about love. The gifts are supposed to build up the body of Christ. I'm trying to build myself up by showing you, look at my gift of tongues. <clears throat> You're just making noise. Shut up, Joe. Without love... If that's not the motivation for using the gift God gave you, forget it. He's not saying you less. He's about to say you're nothing. You'll see in a second. So um, they overvalued tongues like a badge of honor. He wants them to see it's meaningless. 
without love. The thing about a gong or a cymbal is they are in orchestras, right? And you don't ever hear Bach's gong fugue in B minor or Beethoven's concerto of cymbal. They're accent things, right? But you got to hear it with the other pieces of the orchestra, right? The violins, the cellos, the horns, the other drums. And then at a, at a, a key part of the symphony, and you just go, oh, that made it. At the very end of a song. Wow, that's great. No gong solo. There's no cymbal solo. It's not a solo instrument. And neither are you and neither am I. That's the point. So they're best when used with other instrument, other instruments. Tongues, the word tongues means languages. Okay, so um, let's see. One thing about this verse I have to mention, if I speak in the tongues of men, languages of men, that's what it means. That would mean all the, the languages that are available now in the world or at the time he's writing, okay? Which would be Aramaic, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Japanese was going on, Chinese halfway around the world, right? But what's this other thing? If I speak with the tongue of men or of angels, oh, do angels have their own language? Okay, I don't think so. Neither do most scholars. Well, it says it there. If I speak, he's speaking hypothetically. He's exaggerating. You'll see in the other things. Faith to move mountains, he's about to mention. Okay. Anybody ever try to move the Sierras? I'll, I'll watch you if you do it and I'll video it because that's amazing. Moving mountains means something immovable. It means unbelievable faith. If I had a tumor in my chest and you all prayed and it went away, that's a mountain to me. I don't care about the Sierras. Who cares if you can move the mountains? I like them where they are, by the way. Okay, so, but it does say angels, Joe. Don't angels have their own language? Okay, there's a, um, a principle in the whole Bible. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Never build a doctrine on one verse. There is no other verse in the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation that says anything about angels having their own language. That's first. Secondly, when angels speak, they don't need a translator. They speak to the dude they're talking to in his own language. Okay. Angels probably can communicate with one another non-verbally. Okay. Thirdly, some have taken this to mean I'm speaking in tongues. Okay, great. Yeah. What language was that? Because there was no interpretation. I don't know. There have been studies done with expert linguists who know every language on the face of the earth, who've listened to people speaking in tongues and went, that's, that's not a language, not a known language anywhere in the world. Answer by the tongue speaker. Yeah, that's because it's an angel language. No way to prove it. What's the good of it if nobody can interpret it and all that? 
but he's using hyperbole. There are people, I know some people who speak in tongues privately by themselves in their own prayer language. They're not sure what language it is maybe, or maybe they do know, or they think it's a language of angels. Maybe, I wouldn't rule it out, but again, the, the concept, the principle I mentioned earlier, never build a doctrine from one verse is explained this way in the Old Testament. Everything has to have be confirmed by, listen, two or three witnesses. There is no one verse in the Bible that says Jesus rose from the dead. What do you mean? It's all over the place, right? It's in all four gospels. It's in the the it's in Revelation. It's in most of the epistles. It's in the Old Testament. His body won't see decay. Therefore, you know what we believe? He rose from the dead. We just celebrated it two days ago. Amen. Don't build a doctrine on one verse. Okay, I just wanted to mention that. Um, and we covered that. Okay. Um, I have so many notes here. Can you tell I'm like a little kid? I'm excited about this. Um, so using exaggeration, uh, hypothetical, if there was someone who spoke in the tongues of men, some translations have and of angels or of angels, but that person without love, it's just making noise. Uh, number two, verse two. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom, listen to this, all the mysteries and all knowledge, okay? Scholars look at that and say, let's take that back to the first verse. You know what he's saying in verse one? If I speak in all the tongues of all the languages, every one of them, what do you want? I'll take requests. Swahili, sure. If I do that, that's wow, that's really speaking in tongues. Verse two, this is really prophecy. This guy can fathom, listen, all the mysteries, all the knowledge. You know who has that gift? Christ. You know who else? Nobody. Who's got all the knowledge? And if I have faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, there it is. Look, what does it say? I'm nothing, not less, nothing, worthless. It's monopoly money. It means nothing. You've missed the whole point. If you have that good of a gift and you're so into yourself and so conceited with that gift, there's no love in what you're doing. Remember, the purpose of the gifts is to edify, to build up the body of Christ. You don't have the gift for you. You have the gift for us. I have the gift for you, whatever gift I may have. Okay. Um, example number three, hypothetical, if, 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 verse three, if I give all I possess to the poor, uh, you know, that come on in a church, somebody did that. You hear about, yeah, he sold his house, sold his car, sold his clothes. He's got one set of clothes. He gave everything to the poor. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body, this is a hard thing to translate as well, to hardship that I may boast. Some translations have to the flames to be burned. We'll come back to that. But do not have love. What do they all have in common? The word if, the word I, and the word do, the words do not have love. Getting the picture of how important, where's love on the scale? It's off the charts in Christianity. If I 
give everything I have to the poor, give my body over to the hardship, uh, to hardship that I may boast, some sort of suffering. We'll talk about what that means in a second. And I don't have love. I gain nothing. Uh, New American Standard has surrendered my, surrender my body that I may glory. Some of the translations have give my body to the flames to be burned. Okay, what's going on here? Number one, let's take the first part. Give my give all I possess to the poor. What is this? Total generosity. By the way, there's only one human being who ever gave all, and that's Christ. Gave it all away. His own life is blood for others. This is mondo generosity. It's admirable. Some might think it's kind of crazy, but it's not. It's beautiful, isn't it? If you do it with the right motive, with the right purpose, with the right heart. I get the feeling this guy gave everything in the way and he's going around announcing it. Do you know how generous I am? I gave everything away. You just lost your reward because you're doing it for this. Right? Do you know that Jesus only told one dude to do this. Do you remember? Who was he? The, listen to it, the guy that had it all. Rich, young, ruler. Rich, money, young, health, ruler, powerful. I bet he was good looking. I hate him even more now. This guy had it all. The rich, young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. He's trying to show him, you need a savior, dude. And the guy has the gall to say, yeah, I've kept all those since my youth. Remember the story? And so Jesus perceives, oh, you have another God, small g. It's called money. So here's what you should do, Harold. I'm sorry, if your name's Harold, I apologize for using your name over and over. Some of you ladies may be offended. Anyway, um, just kidding. Here's what you should do, Harold. Give everything, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then come follow me. Once you got rid of your God, because that'll do it. And you know what the man did? Didn't do it. Went away very sad because he had a lot of possessions. What's the point? Jesus. Jesus with pinpoint accuracy says, before you can come to me, you got to get rid of that other God. Oh no, I only have one God. Do you? You willing to let go of that other God? Give everything away. It's the only person he told to do it to. We're all supposed to be generous, not that generous, unless is money your God or possessions your God? Tim Keller used to say, your God is the thing or things or people that you would say about those things or people, boy, if I lost that, I'd be nothing. It's important to love your kids and your wife and your husband and your parents and your friends and your church and your, but listen, the most important thing is the thing you can't lose. Can't lose your salvation. Can't lose Jesus. You've sinned this week. You should have lost him. He's right there for you. God still loves you. So this is an, a hyperbole, ex, extreme exaggeration. The guy that gives everything away. You ask, well, why would he do it? Maybe for his own. So you'd go, what a generous dude you are. Thank you. If he gives everything away uh, and gives his body over to the flames or to suffering, to hardship. 
Okay. Um, hard verse to translate, as I told you. What's going on here is there were those who believed, among them pagans and some Christians, by suffering, I'm helping to pay for my sins. That's why I'm, I'm even going to allow my body to be burned. And the truth is, somebody did suffer, and that's why you're saved. But that's not why you suffer. If you suffer, you're not saving yourself. You're suffering for the cause of Christ or whatever. And it's true that suffering makes you stronger. We could spend all day on this verse, but we won't. This is a person that's given it all, but he doesn't have love. That's not his motive. He doesn't say what his motive is, but it's some selfish motive if it's not love, because love is always outward and upward. And if it's not love, then he's not doing it for that reason. And he's not doing it for that reason. There's only one other direction left, right? And what is it? Somehow, so you guys will think, look how holy he is. And that's the wrong motive to do any good thing. There's nothing wrong with giving your stuff away. Nothing wrong with being willing to suffer for the kingdom. Uh, 11 of the 12 apostles died martyrs' deaths, right? 11 of the 13, if you include Matthias and Paul. Only John uh, didn't that we know of. So... The whole point of these verses, and obviously we're going to take this up next week, but we still have more time. We're going to keep going because now he's going to start to describe it and he's going to use interesting words. Uh, we'll just introduce the subject. Um, let me just look at my notes here. Talk amongst yourselves. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Okay, verse four. He's going to talk about what love is like. He's never, he never just uh defines it like webster would verse four love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud why do you think he's choosing these things well because they're true why else because the Corinthian church has problems with patience, with kindness, with envy, with boasting, and being proud. Over what? Mostly their gifts. That's why this is chapter 13 between 12 and 14. Okay. Love is patient. If you have King James, that's long-suffering. Isn't that a great word? Willing to suffer long. Patience primarily is not talking about I'm patient with my car or my stuff. It's about people. Because let's face it, the hardest thing about being a Christian is Christians. Because some of you people are so annoying. Sometimes I am so annoying. And we have to love each other. Right? How? That's what we're going to talk about next week. How, when someone is not kind to me, you're talking about loving my enemies. Okay, number one, patience. The person that doesn't have a short fuse, the person that can have bad things happen to them, can have insults fired at them, can have hurtful things said about them, slandered in public, and they just are so patient. Example. Christ, mocked, 
ridiculed, spit on, punched, whipped, beaten, hung on a cross, all done to a, a being, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully human, who could have went like this and taken all those people into the next century, flicked them all the way to Iraq, right, if he wanted to. And yet, He's just so patient. He's so patient. He's on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing or who they're doing it to, you might say. Patience, I think we're the least patient generation that has ever lived on planet Earth. I'll tell you why. Everything's faster, right? Cook that food. We have to heat up the oven or build, get the firewood and light a fire and then cook it. Oh, no, the microwave, 45 seconds, boom. And we're so impatient. We're in front of the microwave going like this. 45 seconds. Oh, it's not even hot. This microwave so wimpy. We are so impatient. Traffic. Do you hate to wait in lines? I hate to wait in lines. I admit I need to work on patience. I think we all do, don't we? Um, the opposite of short-tempered. They endure provocation with no resentment. They don't seek revenge. Um, by the way, you know who's called patient in the Old Testament? God. God? God. Doesn't God have anger and wrath, though? Yes, over sin. But he's patient, waiting, waiting. Will he eventually deal with all sin, past, present? Yes. Judgment. But he's patient. You want help with patience? We'll talk more about this next week. Here it is. You ready? It's way easier when you realize how patient God was with you. How many years did he wait for you through those sinful years? And yes, I know what you did. No, I don't. But I know what I did. And I think, why didn't you just kill me? I, 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 that's what I deserved. So patient with me. When you've been given that patience, you can give it out when you realize it. When you've been given that kind of grace and love vertically, you can. it's easier to give it out horizontally. But he doesn't deserve patience. Neither do you. But God is still patient with you and I, right? Some of you are laughing and we're late. Let's pray and we'll get out of here and we'll pick this up next time. Same bat channel. Don't go away. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for these uh, words, God, from right from your Holy Spirit to us. Help us not to be proud of whatever gift we've been given. Help us not to feel inferior or change, want to change the gift we've been given for a more showy one. Help us instead to be thankful we were given a gift, period. Help us to remember that they're gifts. They're not earned and that your Holy Spirit graciously gives them. May we use whatever gift we have for your kingdom, for your church, for your glory. Help us to bear one another's burdens and be others central, centered, I mean. And God, as we dive into this subject of love, it's so deep. It's beautiful. And yet it's so deep, you can put scuba gear on and never find the bottom of it. And we see your love for us the love that suffered on the cross, the love that was patient. Help us to model these things based on what you have given us uh, in Jesus Christ.
Bless these truths, God. May they change the way we live. Bless each one here. And God willing, we'll meet next week and go through this chapter some more. Thank you for these words, God. We praise and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Very, very important. They're waiting to see if you'll talk to them. And those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. See you next week. God bless.